were somewhere around Barstow, on the edge of the desert, when the drugs began to take hold. Hello, listeners. Welcome to this brand new episode, the latest and greatest episode of Warped Celluloid. I'm your host, Jack Rourke, right here with my co-host, Chandler Williams. How's it doing, Chandler? How's it going? What's the vibes like? I'm, you know, hanging in there. Quarantine, big quarantine vibes. Yeah, at this point, I'm going, not going to lie, I'm a bit stir-crazy. I think we both are in a minute of losing track of what day it even is. Yeah. Not like the day itself, but like the amount of days. Last time I checked, it was like 52, and that just like made me bury my head. (sighs) Really? Wow. It's like... And so I'm like, yeah, two and a half, possibly two. No, that's two two and a half. I'm bad at math. (laughs) Anyway, what film will we be talking about? today we will be talking about the great fear and loathing in las vegas i want me to go to las vegas at once as your attorney i advise you to rent a very fast car with no top tape recorder for special music get the hell out of la for at least 48 hours we're all set if i could just get, get you john hancock you're on your way yeah. listen you're gonna be real careful with this car right oh yeah man <laughs> present the story that defined a generation Johnny Depp Benicio Del Toro let's get down to brass tacks here how much for the ape fear and loathing in Las Vegas a Terry Gilliam film all right now I've got to go So, where to begin with a film like this? Because I, I personally have a lot to say, as I usually do. And do, but I, I actually kind of want to hear what your take on it first. I, I've, I've seen this film twice now, and I've, I really enjoyed it the second time a lot more. I think it's a film that grows on me more and more with each viewing. That, yeah, like I loved it the first time around, but I find new things I noticed each time. It's one. Of, it's one of those things where it's just so jam packed with detail, and details that you could or then watch it like ten times and still not notice anything, or anything until like the eleventh watch. Yeah, it it, it is very um like jam packed, just very tight. Um, like I didn't even know they used that in Bob Dylan song until or until this viewing. Oh, and the, after the music is fantastic. Oh yeah, we'll get we'll get. Don't worry, we'll get back to the music. Yeah, totally. So. My experience before we get into the actual story goes like this. 
I was in high school, freshman year. I saw this way too young. And uh, yeah, I became obsessed with Hunter Thompson as I realized, looked into his book. Looks like the Rum Diary I read last summer, and it's one of my favorite, my favorite, just like light reads. Per, I mean, like I'll keep it on the shelf just for whenever summer rolls around. And I find the guy himself, regardless of whether he's important in history, and I think there is a case to be made that he is, considering how he helped bring down the Nixon administration in some ways. I'd still say he's interesting. Definitely a character. Um... The real guy. I don't. I mean, there's also the argument of whether or not the film characterizes him and doesn't make him into a real person. And I disagree because if you, I remember hearing interviews like when you people to talk to Hunter and talking about Johnny Depp's performance is that a lot of the mannerisms aren't aren't exaggerated. Like the weird body look, like the way he lets his arms float around when he type and when he types, and the way his eyes like dot around the screen. I that's what I really liked about Johnny Depp's performance. Um, that it's over the top, but it's not uh, in unnecessary over the top because Hunter Thompson is a wild character. Time. Oh yeah, you have to go to that extreme if you're going to do it right. And Johnny Depp, he really does wild characters. Yeah, he doesn't yeah, really yeah. do like <laughs> any kind of normal characters well. I'm trying to. Well, if not, like you know, what's funny is this isn't the only Hunter Thompson adaptation he did, and uh, I think, needless to say, this is the best movie to be made out of his material. The other two that exist are Where the Buffalo Roam with uh, Bill Murray and Peter Boyle, and the other is uh, The Rum Diary, also with uh, Peter. Peter Jackson. Shit, my brain is really, really going off track right now. Johnny Depp. It was made back. It was more. Rum Diaries was more of a straightforward narrative. It's a fictionalization about his early days in the journal, in the fields of journalism. He even goes under the pseudonym Paul Kemp. Interesting. Which, I I could see him using a fake name. Yeah, it it's it is a straight up work of fiction, more semi autobiographical, but I mean, it's a lot looser than Fear and Loathing, and it's lost to real. I mean, if not relying, at least at least um, heavy on the psychedelic inner. Imagery. It's more like a straightforward beach read, I guess. It's a good book. The movie, and I actually watched the movie on Netflix recently. Not bad. Not great. I'll check but, it out. Yeah. Um, now, how how much of this film do you think is nonfiction? Who know? Who can say at this point? I mean, like obviously, really Hunter Thompson and uh, Oscar Zeta Costa. That'd be uh, Doctor Gonzo. Were real people. Yes, they were. At some point. At any point, the sad thing about Benicio del Toro's performance is that that guy was real, and uh, what happened, or and he his uh, history as a lawyer was fairly well documented and extensive. Like he got involved with revolutionaries, and uh, eventually he got Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah. Oh, really? He disappeared in sometime in the late seventies, early eight, early eighties, and no one has found him. They haven't. Even... Yeah, I'm not even sure, not sure if any of his family knew what happened to him either. Shame. Indeed. Uh, what about uh, Benicio del Toro? Had, it's for, had oh, oh, it's unreal. It's I mean, like I'm amazed by by Benicio del Toro, and, you know, mainly because he can amaze you even with just the slight or in the slightest like ticks. Like he's great in inherent but or in advice. He's up so much fun to watch in the Guardians of the Galaxy, and even in his cameo in Infinity War. I remember there was nope. a joke. I remember, I even like his stuff in uh, Usual Suspects. Even though the point of that is to be deliberately obtuse and uh, impossible to understand, I mean, with that mumbled voice, it was like vuh, 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 vuh. even horrible. in the Last Jedi, he was good. Oh yeah, oh he's great in the Last Jedi, and honestly, I think one of the best things about the new Star Wars is that little moral gray art. And I think you could make a whole movie just out of that character, and in his little world, learning like something like War Dogs, but with Star Wars stuff. <laughs> but his his performance in this film. I think it's a great contrast um, to Johnny Depp's. Yeah, 
Right, because one is a lot more talking talk than one the It's kind of a weird love-hate relationship. In a way, or friendship, rather. Yeah, they, they fight a lot. Oh, oh god, the scene, scene with him, them in the bathtub, in the tub and him threatening to throw in the tape recorder while right <laughs> right rabbit peats. That's one of the most uncomfort uncomfortable for two reasons. One, the idea is really dark, and two, you just want Johnny to get out of the room. I'm like, okay, man, this guy's seriously on the table. Get the fuck out of there. Someone presented that uh, scene in my sound design class. Really nice. Yeah. yeah. There's, a, there's a lot of good sound design. Look, I think it's, speaking of the technical stuff, I don't, do you think this is a good, it's good that this didn't get well-reviewed at the time? I wouldn't say good, but it's definitely a film that, uh... I would be shocked if this thing was well reviewed and even that because this thing is an intentionally ugly and unpleasant movie at times and when it gets closer to the end and like the stuff with the adrenochrome secrets and pretty much everything involving christina ricci's character and stuff like the lizard lounge scene it is yeah. intentionally off-putting off. but it, it, i think it's one that uh grows with time yeah. i remember uh d- by the way uh to bring out the or the old uh, running joke i wa- rewatched this on the criterion blu-ray which is magnificent Oh, I did as well. Sponsored by Criterion. Sponsored by Criterion. Anyway, so many great bonus features. Yeah, a lot. It's expensive, but it is really worth its money. Like, there's three audio commentaries on this. Sadly, I wasn't able to get to all of them. One of which with uh, Hunter Thompson himself. The other is with the the producer and uh, Johnny Depp and Dicio del Toro. And uh, the last one is the one I listened to with uh, Terry Gilliam, which gave me at least like two pages worth of note notes just from the first first twenty minutes. So wow, like. Gilliam's a divisive figure these days, some of what because of what was some of the stuff he said in interviews, but but I still find him fascinating. He's easily one of my biggest influences when it comes to filmmaking. And the way he blends, uh, got, blends like fantasy and reality, reality, and the way and the way he shoots things, it's just I I find him just fascinating as a creative mind, even if I don't like all this stuff. I I think this is the only Terry Gilliam film I've seen. Yeah, you saw Brazil. You saw Brazil, didn't you? No, I have not. Oh, I remember. Brazil tends to be people's favorite, and uh, I can definitely see an argument for why it's his best, but this is my personal favorite of his work because I think it's also the, or like the most fully realized singular thing he's ever done. Or outside of maybe, t- or in, again, Brazil and Time Bandits. Time Bandits would actually be a good, fun one to talk about. I yeah, this, about this, is, this is the only thing I've seen by him. Ryan, you've read more of the book than I have, have if I'm not mistaken. But there is one difference I remember read, reading about and that always stuck out to me was the fact that sympathy for the devil is such a huge motif in the book, and that in here in the movie it's absent, like completely. Like they use jumping Jack Flash right over the end credits, but that's about it for like Rolling Stones mention. Yeah, I think um, I'm I'm pretty sure that uh, Thompson actually um, gave the Rolling Stones a special thanks in the beginning of the book. For making that song, and Bob Dylan as well. Nice. Anyway, they. I mean, that. By the way, I think the reason is because of money. Because apparently that would have cost half the soundtrack budget. Which, oh wow. Fair enough. It is a real. I mean, like the book starts out with uh, that, but I think starting out with combination of the two by uh, Big Brother and the Holding Company is a smarter and uh, crucial moment for me filming making because I think that's what made the brand the thing click in my brain. Brain brain. How about how well a soundtrack can be used in a scene? Absolutely. I mean, like how. Or like how much you can motivate the energy of it and just get, immediately have that thing click with you. Because when I think of that song, I think of this movie. That's what, and that's what a great soundtrack you should. It's not just picking a lot of good song, 
songs. It's finding the right use for those songs. Context. I agree. What do you What do you think about the um, like the actual first couple shots, like the montage of the um, montage Vietnam. of Vietnam stuff set to my yeah. favorite things? I think it's a good it's a good way a way as any to get people into the headspace for the movie. Right, movie. It's just, it's a quick thing. It's not. I think you, outside of relating it back to the core themes of the movie. Movie like Obsessions for Mediocrity, The Death of the American Dream, all that good stuff. Not so good. I, you get the idea. I, I, I liked it a lot because it, it uh, gave us context of like um, the time period. Yeah. Speaking of which, the production design of this thing, good God. Oh, it's amazing. One of the things I learned in the director's commentary is some of the cactuses that, were, that they used were specifically designed to look like Ralph Steadman's drawings from the original book, and I thought that was kind of fascinating. Oh, that's uh, awesome. A lot of things. Speaking of which, I want, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this was uh, the fact that it is set in Las Vegas, and one of the few movies that's actually in there for more than one scene and actually extensively uses the landscape. Yes, um, as a as a re- as a resident, how do you feel about that? Not, uh, here's the thing: I learned from the commentary that a lot of the interior stuff or stuff had to be shot on sound stages out of necessity. Or like there was some, uh, like the fact that they couldn't shoot in circus circus, so they used the stand-in for legal reasons. That was shot on the sound stage. That I don't mind because they're able to capture the look of it just enough. And uh, the outdoor stuff, I think, is damn near perfect. Like they, the way they shoot Fremont Street is, they got it. It's probably the only location down there that's still just you know, relatively similar to what it was like that back then. I, and the way I they think... shoot, like the, the the way they shoot the streets and at night and lost it on the strip is uh, fascinating. Like the way they get those footage of the Stardust and the Riviera. Or in Riviera, like have it like stretch across the screen oh, yeah. orbit. It looks so unique and kind of reminds me, me of those shots in old in old film noirs of New York City of like the one of those street lights and such. Didn't they use a uh, projection for the? They shots did. On the, on the I actually love that because it helps make it feel more surreal. Oh right, yeah, real... and it, it's pretty convincing if you don't know. Oh yeah, I was gonna say, and even then, the moments where the illusion slips, it's kind of intent. I mean, it kind of has to because it's supposed to feel. I also, I, mean, I also the production design of this thing, not just for convincing for the time, but for making the place look disgusting. Like those hotel oh, yeah. rooms. I mean, like every time they go back to them, they keep adding stuff to it. So and what they, which one's grosser? What they do to the first hotel room or the one with like the checkerboard window paint? And I, paint I think and the, the second stuff. one. The second one definitely because there's oh, like God. there's water. But, like the gun in the toilet or in toilet. The fact that the floors are like sopping wet. Yeah. Wet, and I think honestly, the, I think the first one. Well, when I first watched it, it was a little more disgusting because it's dark and the, it, there's less lighting, so you can see less. And so it's a little more ominous. Oh, that's true. They both have just food everywhere, which I can't stand. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm, there's a line in there about uh, about how, or how they kept racking up the bill for the room service. Oh, it was like $35 an hour or yeah. something? Yeah, <laughs> for 48 consecutive hours. <laughs> Do you think this movie... Um... I don't want to say promotes, but promotes use. the use of drugs. Yeah. I remember, I think that can be kind of chopped up to a quote from Thompson himself saying, I don't condone drug use, but they've done a lot of good for me. Something along those lines. I don't want to, I'm uh, paraphrasing here. Yeah, I can see that. I could, I could see it both ways, actually, because in the beginning, I could see it promoting the use of drugs, but towards the end, definitely oh God, not. The- Kind of like train spotting, where it shows the appeal of drug use and how people get into it, but it ultimately shows like the heart. And it's like that one shot of him, him near the near the very end of the movie, where he's just clacking away in that type. 
a typewriter, the room is just dark and dingy, and the lights are flickering. And that one, that last shot of him, or like this camera spinning around from, towards the ceiling, the ceiling just giving you this empty sense of space and horror. It's how can you say that's pro drug use? Absolutely, that was a fantastic shot. Uh, it's I want to I want to do a shot like that in a movie. Okay, I found was that, that, was the that a I didn't actually get to hear about that in the commentary. At least not from what I can remember. Anyway, the actual quote I, I found was, uh, I hate to advocate drugs, alcohol, violence, or insanity anyone, but they've always worked for me. Mm. But if, speaking, well, of, uh, where okay. the Buffalo, speaking of where the Buffalo Rome from earlier, the Bill Murray, I think that line is repeated for verbatim in that uh, script. Although I wouldn't recommend it, really, unless you're a completionist for, for both Bill Murray and Hunter Thompson, because it's a difficult set. It's definitely not as good as this. You ever heard of the Where the Buffalo Roam or no? I've I've heard. Of, I think so. I think I've heard of the book, but not the movie. I think the or it was just borrowed from a phrase he did. I'm not sure if that is an actual book, bro. Because it's not a direct adaptation of Fear and Loathing. I think some of it borrows from Fear and Loathing on the campaign trail, not which is definitely an interesting read and oddly topical now, now in terms of how we handle politics. But it's it. The thing is, despite having arguably more of a story and having more uh, mainstream clap behind it, because Bill Murray was a huge star at this point, and they got Peter, I mean, people like Peel Boyle, Neil Young did the soundtrack for it, and they got uh, people like Tak Fujimoto to shoot it. It's a shame because the movie is not as good to look at as the and this because they don't they're not as creative with the camera placement. It looks like a '70s TV show. Ah, uh, yeah, it's speaking, it's also kind of. of the... It's also kind of kind of a endurance test because. Say what you will about fear and loathing, love it or hate it. It's never boring. Yeah, it's always interesting. And, and Bill very, Murray. Murray, I think this is one of the, I think it's one of the first signs that he was going to be a great dramatic actor because he commits wholeheartedly to it, even if the movie doesn't really live up to his wavelength. Interesting. Not, I, I not, might check it out. It's more interesting than it is boring good. Like, okay, one that of those, makes sense. It's one of those title, titles I label for completionists only. Yeah. But so, um, last time, speak, like, speaking of the visual uh, style of this film, I like how they changed completely. Like whenever they introduced a new drug. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I remember one of the things I think they got creative was uh, in the in the original book or in a book that they have right, flashbacks to Vietnam in the one in the first hotel room sequence, and through, they recreate that through rear projection and smoke and lighting. And I didn't even notice until this viewing. Like, damn, that's impressive. That is a, actually impressive. I think oh, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. When he's looking out the window? Yeah, the, when he's looking out the window, and when he's, like, looking at the wall, and you can see, like, the bombs drop, or dropping, and there's, like, these red and purple and yellow lights. And, lights the in light? behind. and the sound design, too, of course. Oh, yeah. The lights throughout the entire film are very what? unique. I'd argue this movie's, like, a master class in, like, how to do good, good dramatic lighting. And, like, sur very surreal, too. I wouldn't... I don't know if I would say dramatic, but... Um, Definitely, well, like, <laughs> over the top and high contrast. Yes, and visually definitely. engaging, and just like it puts you colorful. in the scene. Per I think that's one of the things that, or more than anything, that helps immerse people in this is the lighting, and is the lighting and the cult, the use of color. Like the stuff in the desert is like this acid and wash, really dry orange look to it. And then once they get into the town, everything's like oversaturated neon. Yeah, or it's mostly at night, at night or during the interior stuff, and you, and like a. I think that's part of natural because of sound. 
It is like some of these relocations were either a too expensive or weren't didn't exist anymore because this is like 1972 and they're already stirring. Like the Stardust and the Riviera, those one, those uh, sp- stock footage shots they drive past where the camera looks like that's stretching it like the opening credits of seconds. And yeah, those were, don't didn't exist by the time they were. They were the they filming that. Actually, fun fa- one more fun fact about the driving sequences for when they use reprojection. Those were taken from an old TV show. Just called oh, really? Vegas. I don't. I don't know a lot about I mean, the show itself, but I think I mean, the integration of it is actually fairly seamless. Yeah, I mean, it looks great. Are you surprised that rear projection isn't used much in films in it anymore? I mean, I mean, not really. I guess mean green screen does kind of make it a little, a little mute, moot as a point to go, but sometimes it does look more convincing than, uh, say, green green screen. Well, it's usually just a matter of lighting and fr- blocking. Like some things just look better from other angles than other, and then like straight and flat. Yeah, that's true. It's, I mean, I've seen some green screen like uh, um, car interiors that just look awful. Oh yeah, yeah. But some, and then again, so you could say some, or the same thing about the or those uh, parts in old black and white movies where it looks like the same right now, repeated footage like those old Flintstones cartoons where they chase each other around, but it's clearly the same background on like a loop. Oh yeah, yeah. I actually kind of like that, and I think it adds a surreal quality to it. One that's unintentional, mind you. And let's, and there's something to be lost in it. Something gained and something. Uh, by the way, one last thing regarding special effects. And, uh, the, the first shot we see of the actual Las Vegas Strip of that pink skyline and all the neon lights up and people in there, part of that was CG. Some of it was oh, necessary. Really? Yeah, because they didn't have enough people show up for that day of filming, I think, so they had to have like a bunch of extras in the background. I they did the that. same thing. They did the same thing for the Dune buggy race, I think. Oh yeah, because there are a lot of um, or it, it appears like there's a lot of extra. Yeah, the giant crowd. Like, here's the thing: the CGI until I really like when looked over and squinted at, and it is damn near seamless. Like, this is a movie that I think takes very much takes the David Fincher approach to special effects, where the le- the less you notice them, the better. The less, you- and they're not over the top. Okay, unless they need to be like, or like yeah. when the woman or behind the counter's face turns in like that nightmarish lizard thing or when or when the carpet starts to bleed in, which by the way, that isn't detail that is one hundred percent accurate about Vegas casinos is those carpets. <laughs> or like how absurd and, and liquid and almost liquid and and acid acidic they look. Or like I can see why someone would say, Okay, this fits, but it, it's one of the it feels like a political cartoon come to life in some or in ways where it's or in like the or taking something real and turning it to, or to its most unreal, illo- or logically logical extreme. Like the cards oh. part of that, right? That the weird angles, the fact, the, the even the look of the people. Or like, oh god, speaking of the keyboard, you want to talk about the cameos? Oh yes. Oh god, the list of them go. There's stuff, ones I didn't even notice at first. Like obviously, there's Toby Maguire, Cameron Diaz, Gary Busey. Uh, Gary's Busey's might be the funniest in the entire movie. Oh really? Where is he? He's the highway cop. Lonely oh, Highway yeah, Patrolman. Yeah. yeah, of course. Christina Ricci, obviously. And um, who else? Christopher Maloney is the guy who gets mad at the at the concierge when they're entering the drug conference. The part where they use uh, magic moments. <laughs> that that ironically chipper 50s music. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he said, like, why would they be playing this song? And then uh, Harry Dean Stanton also. Oh, right. He was the judge, I think. Yeah. Yeah, he's probably going to become a patron saint of the show. 
<laughs> Speaking of um, Repo Man, Alex Cox was a uh, writer. Oh yeah, he yeah. was a writer on that. And I think I brought this up in our first episode when we were talking about Repo Man. Was one of the and he Alex Cox wrote the original draft or in draft of this, the one that got made because this went through a lot of people's hands. Everyone from Martin Scorsese to Ralph Bakshi almost made this. Wow, it's almost been almost as many fans as Watchmen or Dune. And Dune in terms of like book books that people say are impossible to adapt. Which I'm very excited for Dune. I am too. I am too, and we'll probably get back to that sometime later. Anyway, back to the point I had originally, if I can remember. And, uh, yeah, the original draft was by Alex Cox, and, uh, was it Tony Rizzoni or someone else? Anyway, Terry, they gave it to Terry Gilliam. He, li- and he liked it, but we ended up thinking there was a lot of extensive rewrite that needed for reasons I can't remember. Remember, but, uh, by the rules of WGA, if you write at least a third of a script, you gotta be credited, but the thing, well, according to Gilliam, that wasn't the case, but he still got credited. Gilliam was furious, so at the time, he burned his WGA card as an act of protest. A little extreme, but yeah, really understandable. There, there's five writers credited on this film. Okay, Alex Cox, Tony Grizzoni, uh, Terry Gilliam, and who else? Hunter S. Thompson. Well, Todd Thompson, Davis. he wrote the Well, he's gonna be credited anyway because of the book. That's just... Todd Davies? Yeah, that's it. I'm trying to see... Okay, look, my brain's already gone back. I'm going back to the music right now, so I would love to talk about the use. What is your opinion on like what's the best use of, this, of a song in this movie? Because the music is all like great, really great period, appropriate stuff. Booker T and the MGs, Yardbirds, Buffalo Springfield, Jefferson Airplane. They're all spot on of the time period, and they're also that is fit the they're used to for the scene. It's yeah, so I was gonna flawless. Say, Bo- the Bob Dylan number uh, stuck stuck in the mobile with the Memphis Blues again. I think perfectly sums up of the transitional period where the movie starts out fun, but then it co- becomes slowly becomes a nightmare. Like him being in the de- being the desert and having to f- go back into Vegas to cover other thing- things is like he clearly does not want to stay here. Frankly, I can't blame him. But he, he kind of has to be. It's a sort of purgatory, like the way which I also think is captured in how uh, he wanders through the one of the vi- casinos late at night. And I just see people like aimlessly gambling, gambling like tossing dice and just staring into space. Mason, he's just or like this one ghost passing by, observing it all. That's oddly fascinating. And there have been casinos that late because I'm not even sure if they're even open that late anymore. His monologue um, during that scene, I really, really loved. Like, where did these people come from? I love the one where they used over uh, get together earned by the young blood. Of him talking about the hippie movement, and it, it's probably one of the most honest things I've ever re- heard about that. Heard about that era because boomers are very self-congratulatory. Let's be honest. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, overly yeah. so, overly so. Like Gen Xers were at least honest with where they were in life. Like, but this is very much the great greatest generation thing, but more in the moment, like how it felt, not how it actually was. And it was like more, like it's admitting that it is nostalgic. And wondering if they actually even accomplished anything. There's a lot of self self regret and stuff and sadness in that moment. I think is where reality actually starts to creep in. I still say it's relatively early on because it happens, I'd say five ten minutes after after the whole bathtub freak out from earlier. I think that was the funniest part of the movie. Yeah, it's funniest and just kind of the most visceral, or visceral too, not miserable. Like, I think, uh, I also say some of the stuff, like, when they're at first, like, planning the trip, too, like, backing out the car, a car from the dealership, a ship, just messing around on the beach, and, like, the bar, 
I remember the but speaking of which uh, that bar there or that of uh, uh, Gonzo was talking or into his or into uh, per, someone in for the phone. Uh, it's a Tahiti bar, which they used to be all over LA. They're not anymore, which is a shame because they actually look really nice. Like like those jar, huge jars of fish tanks. Oh behind yeah. them in the floor. I'd love to go to one of those. Just the atmosphere must be nice. I even like ending the movie on a uh, jumping Jack Flash, honestly. Yeah, I think that I think that worked pretty well too. The use of uh, someone somebody to love too is also this creates this weird. I think it's also the fact that it's this nightclub where it's really low angle and low angles and slow mo, pushing a general feeling of or of uh, ecstasy. Not like the kind of thing like I'm completely giving into this party, but more or more like I'm stuck here in the moment and things are start about to collapse in on itself, kind of ecstasy. It's a yeah, fever pitch. Speaking um, of that scene, uh, one last cameo. Hunt, the man himself, Hunter S. Thompson, there's a part where uh, Johnny Depp stares at him. He's like, holy fuck, is that me? Oh, yeah, during the um, acid test. Even the uh, funny thing is, I, I learned from another jock- documentary on the Criterion disc. Sponsored by Criterion. <laughs> <laughs> and it was that uh, he and uh, Johnny Depp had a correspondence over the course of pre-production, I think. Oh yeah, I watched that. I watched that. Yeah, those uh, letters are here. fascinating. Very strange. And, you know, I think you pro- could probably make a movie out of just that relationship. Nothing like, too in depth, but it's something about the making of this movie. Oh yeah, how many movies? Like, I would you love to see or in like a dramatization or something like I don't know, Apocalypse Now. I mean, yeah, because um, there's so much history behind that production. Okay, I mean, the closest we have is Heart of Darkness, the documentary, which uh, is definitely worth checking out. And it's about as good a document as anyone we're gonna get. But I also think if we're talking about like on film, like within a fictional narrative, I don't think any of them are gonna beat Tropic Thunder. <laughs> oh I yeah, think so. I mean because it is basically the parent, the Vietnam movie to end all Vietnam movies going horribly wrong. The thing is, Apocalypse Now actually saw a re- in release, and is <laughs> and isn't getting scrutinized by people on the internet. Tropic Thunder is uh, it's amazing. Yeah, it's it's aged surprisingly well. Which we'll pro- we might have to talk about just for the fake trailers. It's oh, yeah. that. It's always a toss-up between that and Grindhouse for me. For me, for which is the best fake trailer. I used to usually sign with Grindhouse for stuff like Hobo with the Shotgun and Machete and uh, that one Rob Zombie did with the werewolves and Nicolas Cage's Fu Manchu. <laughs> because it just goes all... Well, I have not seen Grindhouse. Grindhouse is a very fun party movie. movie. I have it on Blu-ray. We are definitely watching it one of these days, and we are getting a ton of friends over for it. Nice, I'm down. As soon as this cor- probably as soon as this quarantine ends, because I really just want to get out of the house. <laughs> yeah, I just want to Spe- get back to Savannah. Speaking of feeling trapped places, uh, the lounge lizard scene I also found really interesting. Oh, that, that was fantastic. Is, I'm also a huge special effects nerd for we're in for like practical effect, effects, suits, makeup, that kind of stuff. God, the lizards in those things. They're only on screen for like five minutes, but they're so ugly and d- diseased and wretched. Wretched, like they look like if they touch something, they'll leave a film on it. I probably Were they all suits? Yeah, they're all suits. Funny thing oh, is, wow. one, of the t- one of the tales from those suits comes back later in the movie when uh jo- when uh when Raul Duke wakes up from the Adrenochrome. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's just like stomping around in the boot or in the boots and the lizard tails just flying around. And that was an improvised bit, like. D- and Depp ran like, hey, do you think this would be funny? He was like, yeah, sure, let's throw it in. What do you think Fear and Loathing does have? have a, going back to the cameos, uh, another thing Gillian pointed out that I found really funny was uh, 
he only put Tobey Maguire in it because he wanted to say he could discover him before Spider-Man came out. Because that was already getting pre-production in the way. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. I'm not sure how true that is because I took it with a grain of salt, but that would be funny if it was wrong. Because well, I think... He was in the Ice Storm. I was about uh, to say Christina Ricci uh, the year prior to this. Yeah, yeah the Ang Lee film. I still need That's, to see that. I still which is an amazing film. I think I watched it on Criterion, but by, by the way. Yep. Oh boy. But no, I I would highly recommend that film. Yeah. Uh, Toby Maguire. Let's just talk about. Let's just talk about him in this film. Funny thing. Also, one last thing about or no, Tobey Maguire in terms of like the cami- the small little details. If you look closely at his T-shirt, it's the Mickey Mouse uh, Ralph Steadman design. I think it, or it was something he did on his own or for for the book that he just actually brought in there. Like the end credits are also got like that and got his art all over it. Which I I became a big fan of him after uh, yeah. you know I love his designs. Reading the book reminds me a lot of uh, Gerald Scarfe, the guy who did the artwork for uh, Pink Floyd: The Wall. Yeah, I thought it was him at first. But yeah. they're very similar styles. It, yeah, that really high, sketchy, violent, violent jagged look, looking caricature. It's like disturbing. I remember uh, I looked in my college's library, and they had a whole book of his uh, drawings of birds and stuff. Oh, wow. I might check that out when we get back. I'm... I think the color... All right, there... I actually saw a uh, tweet recently that's comparing what Mexico looks like in real life to what Mexico looks like in movies, and it's in, like a normal desert stuff with this... Re- compared to something that looks like a scene out of Traffic or Sicaria, you know, where they use that yellow-orange tint into it that makes it look a lot hotter, hotter and uh, more um, sketchy. More like I, dirty and sandy. Yeah. What's your opinion on that? Because um, I think it is relevant to what this film looks like in spots. Yeah, no, I, I, think, I think it's fine for whatever tone you're trying to achieve. I mean, in this film, whenever they're in the desert, it's usually pretty light, and so it doesn't look as grimy. Like, as it does in those films. I think for concerns, if we're talking about, like, strictly two Mexico, there are concerns about, like, stereotyping, but for here, I think it looks not only gorgeous, but I couldn't imagine any other way this film looked. Like, take away the aesthetic from this movie, and it it does not work. It reminds me of why I get so mad about people over, or in first style over substance, because style can be substance. And sometimes, without style, a movie just doesn't work. Like, imagine watching Blade Runner without the style. Style or until the end of the world or under the silver, like or it follows, or even a single escape from New York, which is still wearing mostly models and miniatures and map paintings, things, but still has a divide that signature. Yeah, style style is very important. Now, um, Rain, you need I to have don't love this film. Yeah, that's go ahead. I love how in Rain, not inconsistent, but the way it like jet veers back and forth, like you never know what's going to happen next. It's consistently inconsistent. That is a perfect way to sum it up, honestly. And like, like with, the, with their drug use, it um, it shifts also. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. I remember. I think oh, I lost my train of thought. I'm probably gonna cut this out. I found a um, YouTube comment that said Terry Gilliam has never done acid. Did he say that on the um, commentary? I don't think so. No, or no, but don't call me up. I don't think he actually has much experience with drug use. And drug use, and what do you, do you think of the film's portrayal of drug use? Do you think it's irresponsible, or do you think it or it's vague enough just to or to draw your own conclusions? Or I think I, I mean I haven't done any of the drugs mentioned. In, oh God, in no, neither film, have I. But I, mean, go, I think it works. Going, going to art school, we've known a few people who have. I'm not going to name names. Yeah, or yeah, names, but and just college in general. Yeah, I mean, that's just inevitable. 
I wonder what yeah. they'd think of this, honestly, how accurate it is. Well, I was I was or looking at general. YouTube comments and said um from what I saw and read said the LSD um representation is pretty accurate. Yeah, I was I I was about to imagine because here's the thing, the drug trips are very ex- over the top, but not too much so. Okay, so it's not like Pink Floyd and the Wall fully animated sequences, although I wouldn't want to know what a Ralph speaking going back to the Ralph Bakshi thing earlier, I want to know what an animated version of this would look like. Oh wow, think, like a half animated. Yeah, like a rotoscope. Look, that would look like a trip, I'd imagine. And if we got to, if this from Backsheet around like his peak in like the mid seventies, that would have been something to see. That would have been. I'm I'm glad they didn't do that though. Like that would be good for a different version, but I like that yeah. they left a lot There's of actually, it up to our the, imagination. I think the closest thing we have to that is uh, someone did a comic book for adaptation of it. That's a lot more straightforward. Back in uh, 2015, it's worth oh, reading. Really? And yeah, I'll send you the link to it once we uh when you finish recording. Nice, I I would appreciate that. But um no, I like for the um like the LSD scene, for instance, when they're in the lounge with the lizards. Like that's yeah. you don't have to imagine anything. Like the the carpet's moving and the faces are you know morphing. But on the other hand, like the adrenochrome scene, all yeah. of that's up to our imagination. That is that is when it goes intense. By the way, adrenochrome isn't even real. That's just a drug they made up for the movie. No, it is real. Right, really. Yeah, no, it's it's I, it's not really a drug. Because Gilliam a, said that on his commentary, like we just made the name. Up. There's a there, there's an adrenal gland in the oh. brain, um, and like supposedly, uh, devil worshippers like, you know, do human sacrifices, and, and oh, it, it apparently has like DMT in it. Oh like, boy! Supposedly, the um human brain produces like a low amount of DMT, but that's crazy, man. That. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Take everything we say with a grain of salt. A lot of this is just opinion. Anyway, that's crazy, man. You ever done DMT? <laughs> you like elk? <laughs> Speaking of which, there are enough Hunter Thompson. Uh, there, if you look on YouTube, there is a clip of Joe Rogan reading off his daily routine at one point, set to like I think Wagner or some classical music. Music, and it's like three fifteen p.m. Cocaine, three three thirty cocaine, four fifty cocaine, and like it's just nonstop drug use and. The fact that this guy lived to even the age of like six or of sixty four is or sixty seven. I can't remember. It was sometime in his sixties. It's still astounding to me. Like, how did this guy not die in his thirties? I mean, and it's no wonder why he killed himself. Just like one day, he just was bored. Yeah. Too weird to live. Too rare to die. Tomorrow, phrase on this movie. But his drug use, like from that video that you sent me, that that's like unfathomable. Yeah. The amount of drugs you, he would do every say, day. I was gonna say, if you just or in fed that amount of drugs to even someone right at the party scene in our school, they'd OD in at least a, in a couple hours. And I mean that the tolerance would have had to been built up for years. That that's the only theory I can think of, at least. By the way, uh, fun, another funny thing: the car they I mean, that red convertible in the opening scene uh, that actually is was Hunter Thompson's car. Oh wow! One of the cars that's, he- a, that's an interesting fact. I think he loaned out this production. I think what are there any movies that you think we could compare this to in the late nineties? Like Train Spotting, obviously because of drug use, but the closest thing I can think of is uh, David Cronenberg's Naked Lunch, because both are literary classics involving the psychedelic drug and drug use, and are less structured narratives and more loo- loose odysseys about what they see in any given moment. More like observation pieces or uh, gonzo journalism, I guess. Also, in the case of uh, Thompson, since he actually was a journalist and invented this style of journalism. 
I know of uh, both of those films, but I have not seen either. Yeah. I, I would like to. Naked Lunch is a very interesting watch, and it does actually some funny thing is uh, they do something similar to that in this, where uh, there's a part where uh, Peter Weller was talking to Ian Holm, and uh, as far as like read my lips, and it's clear that all, all the sound mixing is all off, and uh, none of the dialogue is matching up with what when he's saying on screen. They do something like that in the Lounge Lizard scene, where uh, there's this almost about Benicio del Toro, oh, just, or just waggling his lips, and it's just this internal monologue. It's a re- it's a really interesting effect that I think I might want to play around with. Oh yeah, same. Uh, very like simple, simple and effective. Yeah, I mean, like at first of all, you're thinking like, wait, is that a continuity error? It's one of those things that gives. You, it's a really, really quick way of getting you to think that there's something off. But it's clear enough to know, like if you're paying attention enough, you know that. Yeah, it's, it's not. But it's not too weird as to to be like, or to take you out of the scene. If anything, it makes you actually more. It's something that both takes you out of it and brings you in at the same time. Flings you around like a rag doll, I guess. Which I would say this entire film does. Expect it's not always ple- it's not always pleasant. Hell is it no the, the stuff with uh, Christina Ritchie gets um, to some really dark places. Oh yeah, I, like the, the nightmare sequence that... of them in the nightmare sequence of them in the courtroom, or in courtroom, and them in ja- and those uh, striped those striped pajamas. And I, Dean stands like the the judge in that sequence, right? Yeah, he like, is. He's got like an like axe. he's all right. Bye. Like that, I think Terry Gilliam really was the right choice call for this movie, though. Considering who, who else could you see successfully filming this? I'm having a hard time thinking. Darren Aronofsky would be an interesting choice, considering Ooh, what yeah. he did was still like, it was still like Mother in the Fountain. That'd be, God, that'd be a, a trip. I I back, Scorsese was considering this at the time, and I think De Niro was involved at one point too, but that ended up moving nowhere. Yeah, I I don't know how that would have turned out. I mean, Scorsese is a much more vi- visceral, or not visceral, versatile filmmaker. Like, who else makes stuff like Bring Out the Dead and Age of Innocence alongside stuff like Goodfellas and Wolf of Wall Street? It's a and Hugo. Like, people always people always as up as the gangster guy, but if you look at it, only five or four or five of his movies are around about gangsters. Most of his other stuff is like thrillers or co- or dark comedy or like he has a much more versatile. Like he did stuff like New York, New York, and Alice doesn't live here anymore. New York the stories. Oh yeah, he all oh, right. He did a segment for that. So did uh, Francis Ford Coppola and Woody Allen. We're uh, what we watched parts of that in my um screenwriting class actually. Nice. I still need to give that a look. Yeah, I'm gonna check it out after the clip I've seen. So what would you give this movie in total? Like I'd say I'm probably this is my set. Or go ahead, you you go first. I'd, I'd this is one of a perfect ten for me. This is in my all time top twenty. Oh like, wow. It is a movie that means a lot to me and has influenced me greatly. I can't imagine my life without it. That's that's awesome. I'm so happy for you about, about that. Um, I have, I have a lot of films like that um, of mine too. But um, I would say we'll probably talk about them eventually. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Um, since this being my second watch, I definitely liked it a lot more. I would give it like probably a nine out of ten. Nine or eight. It's one of those divisive, you're going to either love this or you're going to despise it, and either one is completely understandable. I've rarely run into a person that's, a, that's a halfway through. But there are some divisive movies where you there are people who are in the middle like, yeah, it's okay. It's okay, I can see both parties, but this is a truly polarizing experience. No, I could not imagine like showing this to my mom or like, <laughs> oh, God, no. like my roommates. I barely felt comfortable watching this with my dad. My, <laughs> 
But only because, like, there's some parts that are funny enough to get him up. If there's something weird, he will just not tolerate it, and he'll just get angry and storm out of the room. It is, a. Uh, he's not always the most fun to watch movies around, unless it's, like, Animal House or something, or Clint Eastwood Westerns. Sounds like my dad. I think we, we want a project I wanted to do is like make or make a letterbox list of canonical dad movies. <laughs> or, yeah, of stuff that just dad. Taken is going to be on that list. The or in the Sergio Leone uh, catalog or in Fistful of Dollars dollars for a few dollars more. Good, bad, the other Transformers. Time West. Really? Oh yeah. I mean, maybe my the Rock. Rock, maybe. Oh boy. My dad, he doesn't care about that kind of stuff. Like he loves war movies. Movies, but he never ran got into sci-fi. Like, my, if you show my dad Spielberg, he wouldn't get into something like Raiders of the Lost Ark or um, Lost Encounters or Ready Player One. He would be more into something like Saving Private Ryan or The Post or Lincoln. Yeah, my my dad's in like older Spielberg, like uh, E.T. and um, Nice. Yeah, um, Indiana Jones. But what are some new. other things you've watched recently? Um, like notable. I have watched so much. Which that's one of the reasons I'm thankful for this quarantine. It's given me time to watch so many movies. Oh, absolutely! I've I watched a ton of stuff. I have been going through. Um, thanks to the Criterion Channel, I've been Sponsored going through by Criterion. <laughs> Not really. I've been going through um, Bergman's filmography, and I'm probably watched... okay. I uh, don't want to give it away in game two, quickly, but we may or may not be covering Hour of the Wolf in October. October's I... gonna be a fun month. Let's just say that. I, I watched it um, last night, and or night before last, and I think it would be a great one for us to do. Um, We're definitely talking about it. Yeah. I uh, I finally checked out Natural Born Killers because it was on Hulu, and I think that's one of the few movies in the 90s that is comparable to this. Uh, because of its jarring okay. shifts and shot. No, like the, the shift from black and white to color to all the Dutch angles. To the, to the fact that there's parts of like quick 20-second interludes that look like 90s uh, liquid television, adult animation, that kind of alternative... And comics crowd. What is this called? Uh, Natural Born Killers. It was uh, w- one of the few movies Quentin Tarantino wrote but didn't direct. And uh, I brought this up on the uh, Wild at Heart episode. He is not fond of it from interviews. I wonder if that's or he's that's still the case now. Honest. Who knows. I've also uh, I watched Mirror, which was Ooh. insane. Is that the Tarkovsky one or? Yes. Highly so, recommend. Very philosophical. Very Tarkovsky. Um, Persona I watched also, which is so beautiful, so fantastic. Um, Speaking I said, of, I said it was like a female version of the lighthouse. The li- I was about to say it's like that from a different perspective. Like, okay, I think you might have sold me on that because I've a little been a little nervous about getting into Bergman because I figured it was gonna be too much. There's some things like I'm just gonna say for a moment, like Sorcerer. I didn't kind of William Friedkin film, which by the way, one of the most dishonest titles ever, and uh, even Free. I think Friedkin was unhappy with it because it completely missold the film. I remember watching that as a kid. I'm like, this is really well made, but I don't think it's clicking with me at all right now. So I'm just going to save this for later. No, I'm I'm the opposite. Now that I'm in film school, I've been getting into like classic films so much more. Yeah. And that's the thing. I think film students need to watch, not just the like the celebrated stuff, like look in the weirder corner or stuff like that. Or this and Nicholas Rogue and like look, really dig deep and find, and find your voice. Good artists borrow, great artists steal, and such. Absolutely. Which I finally, speaking of books that are uh, difficult to adapt, I finally watched the Charlie Kaufman film adaptation. That how Nicholas Cage. How'd you like it? I was actually, quite, I think it is also quite comparable to Fear and Love. 
when you're loathing is it captures the spirit of the book rather than the rather than the book or everything that happens in it. Because, or like did speaking, directed. Yeah, Spike Jones. Yes, yeah, Spike Jones did direct directed, and it's. I think he did this around the same time he was still doing music videos, and uh, it was the same. It was around the same time he produced Jackass, first one. I never knew that he produced that, but that's hilarious. Oh yeah, he produced all the Jackass movies, and uh, Jeff Tremaine is a friend of his, I think. And he's married to, or he used to be married to Sofia Coppola. Nice. I think uh, Matthew Vaughn was married to Claudia Schiffer. At one point. Oh, and Noah. Um, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but who did Marriage Story? Marriage Story. Uh, um, Noah Baumbach. Yeah, he was married to. Um, shit, what's her name? Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Little Women. Oh yeah, Greta Gerwig. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were married. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the episode where both of our minds go completely blank, which is weird because <laughs> I actually took notes for to keep this from happening. Oh well, it is. What yeah, it is. I mean, why didn't say? Um, it's just this film, man. It's far out. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a trip. I mean, it's a trip for sure. By the way, one last cameo. I keep forgetting. Like the cameos in this are extensive. One of which was uh. Right, they got you. Remember uh, Mini Me from Austin Powers? Yes, I do. He's oh, in this. Yeah, he's, he's one of the lo- hotel employees. There's like three midgets in this film. Yeah, one of right, one of which is Vern Troyer, which it's a shame he passed away, away a few years ago. You know, because apparently the guy was really well liked in the industry. Yeah. Could you see this ever being remade? I don't know. I don't, well. And not just from the financial aspect, like I think that getting period stuff is more expensive than ever these days. These days because of how expensive the landscape has changed, but also because whether or not people want to adapt Hunter Thompson anymore. Not Charles Pukowski or Kurt Vonnegut were adapting. It is both a challenge and kind of no, things exist in different mediums for different reasons. Absolutely. Like there's a there's a reason there have only been two good adaptations of Kurt Vonnegut so far. And why it's hard to get um, very good things. Some something the times the thing it's just plays differently on the page. Yeah, why, same for Watchmen. Like, it reminds me of how uh, speaking of Watchmen, uh, comic book dialogue isn't the best on screen. Like what happened with the kill, that animated Killing Joke movie from a couple years ago. That oh, sometimes yeah. dialogue, re, sometimes written dialogue is I mean, doesn't always translate well, well on screen because you just have to phrase it differently to be punchier, or punchier and less verbose. And it's they're just different experiences like reading a comic yeah, like, book because. I mean, because reading books and comic books, you can go at your own pace. You can stop wherever you want to, pick it up, and you can read it in one sitting. Movies, you have to le- I mean, have to actually have factor in time. Like again, Tarkovsky. You, you can't use your imagination as much. Like yeah. um, you imagine different voices for each character um, while reading a comic book, but you can't do that. One, actually, it's one of the reasons why I like this movie is that it is able to leave so much to interpretation, and w- while still being fairly easy to follow. I mean, and yeah, if the story itself is practically non-existent, and it is just a series of vignettes. More story than plot. Uh, yeah, more dialogue than plot. I'm more of a character. This is what we call a character study. Yeah. Where, where the character doesn't really go through an arc. More, you just get a day in their world. I don't think I'm about to say something controversial in terms of screenwriting here, but not every film needs to have a big arc for their character. We just yeah. need to be invested in. And um, sometimes true. they don't need to change. Also, I remember uh, you've asked me if this could be remade. I think it's lived on in other ways. Like, 
The be- you remember- Did you ever see the beach bum with uh, Matthew McConaughey? No, but I've, I wanted to. I've been wanting. Oh, like what if Hunter S. Thompson made him his own version of Captain Ron or Easy Money? Like one of those lo-fi comedies. And speaking of which, this might also be the most har- watchable Harmony Corinne film I've ever seen. I don't know why it says it's bad, but these films are deliberately designed to test your patience and uh, endurance. <laughs> That's but, kind of how Tarkovsky is, but more in like a pretentious yeah, artist well, way. We were almost going to do Gummo next mo- month, which I'm still not opposed to, but uh, I can't find it on streaming, so that's going to have to wait for at least until November. I, I saw it places. on Letterboxd, and it looks so interesting. Yeah, and, like, just so that, disgusting. Yeah, God, the shot of the kid eating spaghetti out of the bathtub is just... <laughs> it's like what if yeah. you went to a tenement building in like Detroit or something like that. Like this, The way these people live is uh, by like, so many health and safety standards. I'm just... <laughs> it just looks so entertaining. I want to watch it. That's one way of putting it. Not how I put it. Not how I. Not entertaining in the same sense that this film was entertaining, but God, I, I, want, I want to see what this movie's about. <laughs> intriguing, I think is the word. Yes, exactly. Uh, okay, you've got my attention. You had my curiosity. Now you have my attention. <laughs> Django. Django, wasn't she? Would you- anyway, I think that does it for us this uh, episode. If you want to follow or to follow us on Twitter, find our back catalog. Catalog. We, you can find us on Spotify and iTunes and Apple Podcasts. iTunes is Apple Podcast. Oh shit! That's, that's so fine. Oh, because is iTunes not, not a thing anymore? iTunes is still a thing. Now I heard. It, I heard it was going away. No, who knows? The, nothing ever. Probably, probably just a rumor. It's another and just more freaks in the free kingdom. <laughs> and you can find, find me us, on Letterbox. You can find also find me on Letterbox. Just find search our names, Jack Rook and Chandler Williams. And find the podcast on Twitter at Warp Celluloid. Just at Warp Celluloid. Just and spelled just like the title, except for minus the space. And for now, this has been Jack Rook with Chandler Williams. Thanks for listening, guys. 